Um, if you guys can uh, open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 3, um, I'll be reading the chapter. So, a time for everything. There's a time for everything and a reason for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep, a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to, a time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from the toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet, no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Whatever is has already been, and what will be has been before. And God will call the past to account. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God, will you bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked? For there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits for them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All, got, all go to the same place. All come from dust and to dust return. Who knows if the human spirit rises up front and the spirit of animal goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot for who can bring them to see what will happen after them. Can we please welcome Pastor Carl? Yeah, hey, I am so excited to be here with you. My name is Connor and I serve as the pastor of Next Generation Ministries at Mission Hill Church. Yeah. Every time someone uh, hears my title, they go, so you're a youth pastor, right? Technically, I am, but I'm blessed in that I get to serve uh, students all the way from fifth grade to college at our church. And man, I have a special place in my heart for uh, your age, that what God's doing in your life, the season of life that you are in, because God deeply got a hold of my heart in the, the season of life that you're walking through in college and radically changed my life forever. Hey, I want to do something before we dive into Ecclesiastes 3. I want you to turn to your neighbor. I want you to look him in the eyes, and I want you to say, buckle up. You are saying that because we are about to walk through a very deep, very profound, very rich chapter of Scripture, and we are going to do it tonight. So, hey, I'm excited to walk through this. Speaking of buckling up, it was a perfect summer day when I hopped into my friend's truck and we began to race out of town and go on the outskirts of town to meet our friends at our destination. We made it through the 
residential area, and then as we made it out to the country roads, he punched the gas and things picked up. 45, 55, 65, 75, and we were barreling down the roads to get to our friends and connect with our group. As we were driving down the roads, the truck started to slow down, and we pulled up to our destination and pulled off down a gravel road, and we parked the car, and I got out. And as I closed the door, and as I looked up where my friends were at, my heart started to race because I was eye-to-eye with the highway-wide bridge. So I, I collected myself. I started to climb up the hill, and I made a turn to connect with my friends. And as I was walking up, I saw a group of people that I had never seen before, one after another after another, jump off the bridge and plunge over 30 feet down into the Quiver River. I'm walking up this hill. I know what's about to come, and I'm preparing myself for this jump. And as I connect and as I'm getting up to the ledge, I'm seeing people jumping and coming out of the water. As I'm about to step up on this ledge, jet skiers are pulling up. They're literally looking at me, and I'm like, okay, it's about to go down. So I get up to the the edge of the bridge. I look over, and my heart is going. And I say, hey, it's now or never. And so in a moment of faith, I take a step back. I run. I leap out, and I fall, and I plunge underneath the water, and I go deeper and deeper and deeper until I collect myself and began to swim up. And as I cleared the water, before my mouth is even above the surface, I was screaming. It was exhilarating. It was awesome, that feeling of plunging that deep into the water and coming up. And I got out, and I made my way, and ran up the hill and did it again and again and again until the sun went down. I tell you that story because that event is a moment, a snapshot of one of the best summers of my life. During that summer, I did life with five of my best friends, and we did things like that all in that season. We went to concerts, we went to parties, we did crazy stuff all summer, and it was amazing. And I got to the end of that summer, and I prepared to go to college, and because of the life that I had done with that group, it made it really difficult to step into that season. But eventually that time came, I showed up at Lindenwood University, I un packed my bags, got set up in my room, and then for the next two months, I I walked through one of the, the loneliest seasons of my life, struggling to genuinely connect with people, struggling to build relationships, struggling to find my identity, struggling to find my place at this college. All the while, one foot was back in this old season of my life, and one foot was in where I was being led. You are in a season of your life where you are beginning to experience what I just shared. You are going from one thing to the next, and sometimes it feels like your life can go through seemingly opposite times. Some of you might have even shown up on this campus this year, and you're experiencing just what I talked about. You're coming out of an amazing season of life, and you have one foot back, and you're struggling to get your other foot down and meet people. For others of you, maybe you had this vision coming into college of saying, I'm going to meet all these people, I'm going to have this amazing friend group, and you pledged a sorority or a fraternity or tried to get into a club, and maybe they turned you down, and now you're just meet people to connect with them and have friends. For others of you, 
you might have walked into syllabus week and thought, man, I got this. This class is going to be easy. I got this in the bag. And now you're a few weeks in and you are drowning. And you are, what you're experiencing right now, you're going to experience over and over and over again throughout the rest of your life. And you're going to continue to walk through seasons that seem like they're opposite of each other. Most people, many people in this world have experienced that over and over and over again. And they've come to the conclusion, there's no purpose in life. There's no meaning. And there's no God. And what I want to contend with you tonight is I think that they have it wrong. I think that even though you are going to walk through season after season after season that might not make sense, that might seem like they're completely opposite of one another, that there is a sovereign God who is in control of your life in every season of your life. So here's what I want to leave you with tonight. Allow his sovereignty to bring you peace. Allow the sovereignty of God to bring you peace in your life. And when you accept that reality by faith through Jesus Christ, it's a game changer. And it changes who you are. And it gives you the confidence to walk forward in this life. As we pick up in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Solomon is going to help draw us to the attention and the realization of God's sovereignty. He's going to help us to understand how even though life may seem meaningless, that life may seem like there is no purpose. Ultimately, there is a God behind it all who is guiding every step of your life, every season. And so tonight, we're going to talk about how that sovereignty can be the game changer in your life and what that brings peace in your life for. So I want you to look with me at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and we're going to pick up in verse 1. It says, To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. I love how the translators of this Bible pick up these verses of Scripture. It says, to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. And what I love is that word purpose really means delight. So if you were to go back and look at the original Hebrew of this text that was written, the language that Solomon would have written it in, he used a word kephetz, which ultimately means delight. So what this really literally translates as is a To everything there is a season, a time for every delight under heaven. That word is interesting, delight. It characterizes so much of human nature. So much of our decisions, so much of our actions are driven by our delights, our passions, our emotions, the things that we delight in. And what Solomon is setting up here is a list of things that we walk through in our life that really encompasses our lived experience of life. And he shows how the delights of life drive so much of what we walk through in the seasons that we walk through. He's setting up the stage for us to understand that every delight in the sovereignty of God has a purpose. What we're about to see is a list that contrasts each other. It's it's almost a paradox. Two seemingly opposite things that when they come together, work together. And what we're about to see is a list of things that seem opposite of one another, but ultimately, we recognize that God is ultimately in control. Listen to what he writes. He says, To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, and on and on and on, down the list he goes. And as I read this list over and over and over again in preparation for tonight, what really stood out to me that were the things that were seemingly bad in this list. 
and how even those things, there is a purpose. Listen to what he highlights. To everything, there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to die. The seemingly worst thing in all of human existence, death. Somehow, even in the mind and the sovereignty of God, there is a purpose for this. A time to kill. Something that we know God hates. Something that he's declared in his word that we're not supposed to do. Somehow, even in the sovereignty of God, there is a purpose for this. A time to break down, a time to weep, a time to mourn, a time to cast away. Those words all describe really uh, laments, weeping and mourning over things. We recognize that in the sovereignty of God, even when we mourn, even when we weep, even when we lament, when we know God, there is a purpose for that. A time to cast away, a time to refrain, a time to lose, a time to throw away, a time to tear. He's talking about loss. We walk through good seasons of life, but ultimately over and over and again, we lose things. And he says, even in this, there's purpose. Finally, a time to hate, a time for war. Even in the seemingly worst things in human existence, God is still sovereign. So what we see from this list is that delight in seemingly bad times is found in God's sovereignty. So I don't know what you're carrying into this room tonight. I don't know what you're walking through. For some of you, you're carrying burdens, you're carrying a weight, you're carrying hardships, but no matter what you're walking in through, God is still sovereign. And in this list, he helps us to understand the power of paradox because over and over and over again, he holds up these things that seem like they can't come together, but in the sovereignty and the mind of God, all of these things work in accordance with his will and for your good. I can remember the first time I heard this. I was a young boy, and I went to a funeral. I was not a Christian. I didn't know the Lord. And as I saw the casket going into the graveside, a pastor was reading this scripture over the service. And even as someone who didn't know God, I felt the weight and the power of these verses. I felt the impact in that moment of what these verses meant. And now as someone who is in Christ, someone who has repented of their sin, who has trusted Jesus alone for salvation, these words have so much more meaning and depth and truth, because ultimately, I know the God who's in control over all. I know the God who is in control of all of the lived experience, all of the, all of the trials and the, and the wins and the things to celebrate that we see in this list. God is in control over all of it. At the end of chapter 2 in Ecclesiastes, Solomon begins to set the stage for life and human existence, and what he's saying is that life without God is ultimately meaningless. And no matter what you seek after, no matter what you try to find your identity in, ultimately, you're not going to find that in this life. Only by submitting to God, by seeking after him, by knowing God can you find that. But after reading this list, Solomon's about to give us hope. He's about to help us see that in the sovereign mind of God, we can find peace amidst meaningless. Look with me at verses 9 to 15. What profit has the worker from that in which he labors? So in verse 9, he's picking up the discussion that he capped off in chapter 2 by saying, hey, I spent my life trying to find my identity in my work, and it, it didn't come through. I still was restless. 
I still was burdened with this realization that life is meaningless without God. And he goes on and on in all of the different ways that he tried to find peace in this life. But what I love what he's doing right here is as he's moving from verses 2 to 8, talking about the power of paradox, he's beginning to help us understand the hope that we have in God. So he says, What profit has the worker from that in which he labors? I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be preoccupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time. So in verses 2 to 8, he's taking this big concept. He's saying, God is in control over every season of life. But in verse 9, he's bringing us back to the realization that even when we know God, we're still going to feel restless. We're still at times going to feel like life is meaningless. We're still going to seek after and strive after things all throughout our life as a follower of God that's not going to ultimately give us peace. But he begins to make it practical for you and me. He says, I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be preoccupied. And what this task he's talking about, the calling for you and me upon our life, is as a follower of God, if we are in Jesus, our God-given task is to accept the sovereign will of God. No matter what trial we walk through, no matter what season of life, no matter how confusing life may be as we go from one thing to the next to the next, our calling and the God-given task of men is to accept his will. So the question becomes, how do we do that? How do we do that in the tension of this life? How do we accept the will of God? Verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. So in the midst of a life that seems like it's meaningless, in the midst of a life that we seek after in our flesh, things that ultimately are not going to bring us peace, we find peace by recognizing that God has made us and that he has made us in his image. He says, I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are be preoccupied, or to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time. God has made everything. Every season, everything that you walk through, God is in control of it. He's made it, and he has made you in his image. And it says he has put eternity in the hearts of men, in the hearts of women. That means you are made in the image of God. If you keep those two things at the forefront of your mind, that you are a child of God made in his image, and you keep putting that in front of your, yourself over and over and over again throughout your life, that is what's going to give you meaning. That is what's going to give you peace. And that there are going to be times where you stumble. There are going to be times where you slip back into trying to find that identity and other things. But ultimately, that is how we have breakthrough in our life and have the peace of God. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. So in the midst of this meaningless life, we remember our identity in God. We remember that he's made us. But because of who God is, and because of how great he is, and because of how immeasurable the mind of God is, we can never exhaust him. He is enough to come back over and over and over again, and trust that whatever you're walking through, he's in control of. And you throw, up in your hand, you throw up your hands and say, God, I don't understand, but you are in control. That's what he's doing here in verse 11. 
And I love because we see this in Scripture over and over and over again. Go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Paul, one of the greatest minds and intellects the world has ever known, a follower of Jesus Christ. Paul, as he's talking and unpacking in chapter 11 of Romans, the implications of the sovereignty of God, how God has created everything that is, how God knows everything that is, how God in his immeasurable wisdom has created something called the church of Jesus Christ, and he's grafted in Gentiles and Jews into this church. He's talking about the sovereignty of God, and at the end of chapter 11, he literally throws up his hands, and he declares that he can never understand the depths of God's mind. Listen to verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become a or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. So this is the hope that you can find in life. This is the peace that you can find. Over and over and over again, when you walk through something that you don't understand, you can throw up your hands in the midst of a seemingly meaningless life and say, God, your ways are higher than my ways. God, you are so much greater than I am. I could never understand, but I trust you. I trust you. Verse 12, I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. So after throwing up our hands and testifying our trust in God, he gives us something practical. What do we do, what do, we do after that? After we declare that we, we can never know the, the depths of the mind of God and we trust him, what do we do? Verse 12, I know that nothing is better for them to rejoice and to do good in their lives and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. Solomon is introducing us something theological. It's called the common grace of God. The common grace of God is different than the grace that we experience in salvation when we experience the truth of God working through his son, receiving it by faith, we are redeemed, we are saved. When we trust Jesus alone for salvation, we receive the grace of God. But God extends something called common grace to all people. All people, whether they're saved or unsaved, experience his grace. So when you woke up this morning and the sun rose in the same direction, that's an example of the common grace of God. When you came here and you spent time with other people, and you enjoyed their company, that's the common grace of God. That burger and that hot dog that you ate right before you came in that tasted good, that's a part of the common grace of God. So in the midst of a seemingly meaningless life, when we throw up our hands and we say, God, you are in control, we should step out and we should begin to enjoy the things that God has given us. But here's what I want to challenge you with tonight. Most people stay there. Most people, whether they're saved or unsaved, go through this life. They enjoy the comforts, the things that are around them, but they never begin to think deeper and say, why is all this here? Why am I alive? Why do I enjoy this? Why is there goodness in this life? Look where Solomon takes us. Verse 14, I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. So Solomon doesn't keep us in the common grace of God. Solomon doesn't keep us just enjoying the things of God rather than looking to his face. Solomon takes us 
It draws us directly into the presence of God when he says, I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. He's introducing us to the transcendence of God. The reality that even though God is close, even though that God can be known personally, ultimately, he's far greater and above anything we could ever hope, dream, or imagine. He's beyond everything we could think of. So he takes us from the common to the transcendent. The question becomes, how do we get there? How do we get from what we experience and what we enjoy in this life into the presence of God? And the person who takes us there is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ takes us from the common to the transcendent. Jesus takes us from the unholy to the holy. Jesus takes us where we need to go, and that is into the presence of God. And then he says this, nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. That which is our, has already been and what to be has already been. And God requires an account of what is past. So Solomon's helping us to know because God is transcendent, everything that he has declared and everything that he establishes is eternal. No one can take it away. No one can change it. No one can tear it down. So as you walk into this room tonight, and maybe you've walked through a crazy week, maybe you've gone from one thing to the next, and you feel like you're just stumbling from one season of your life to the next, hear this tonight. God is beyond it all. God is outside of the paradox of your life. God is not chained by the circumstances of your life because he is far greater than anything you could hope or imagine, and he exists beyond it all. So what he declares in your life, it's going to come to pass. And no one's going to strip that away. No one's going to take that away from you. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. That which is has already been and what is to be has already been. And God requires an account of what is past. So God gives us peace amidst meaningless. Look where Solomon takes us. God gives us peace amidst unrighteousness. Verse 16, moreover, I saw under the sun in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. And in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. So Solomon tests our faith a little bit here. He helps us to understand that God is transcendent. God is beyond it all. Nothing that he declares will ever be taken away. But he draws us back to the earth. He draws us back to the practical and he reminds us that we live in an unrighteous world. Even if we follow God and even if we've been redeemed by his grace, we live around sinful people in a sinful world. And as we see that over and over and over again, it can look like God isn't in control. It can look like God isn't sovereign. But he says, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there, and in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. God is in control even of the unrighteousness. And we know that because at the beginning of time, as the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, sinned and turned their back against God and sin entered the world, from that point, iniquity has reigned. Judgment has been in the place, wickedness, excuse me, has been in the place of judgment. And we live in a fallen and broken world. But even in that, God is in control. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. The reason that God is in control, the reason 
that as you look at the world and see the brokenness and see the fallenness and see the sin everywhere around you, the reason that you can trust God is because there is coming a day when God is going to make all things right. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 to 10. Paul, once again, recognized this truth that Solomon's talking about. He's talking about the assurance of the resurrection of the believer. And then in verse 9, he says, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well-known to God, and I also trust are well-known in your consciences. So here's the reality. Paul was stoned. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was cast out of every city that he went preaching the gospel, and he kept pressing forward, and he kept believing that he could trust God and the sovereign will of God because he knew there was coming a day where God was coming back to judge the world in righteousness and make all things right. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, there is coming a day where you are going to stand before Christ at his judgment seat, and he's going to ask you, what did you do with my gospel? What did you do with the faith that I entrusted to you? And for those who have sinned and turned their backs against God and have let wickedness reign in this earth, they will stand before him too, and he will make all things right again. God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. So if you're a believer in the room and you're feeling weary coming in tonight, you're trying to do things right before God. You're trying to go in your, grow in your faith with your relationship with the Lord. You're trying to honor relationships just like those in this room with other believers. I just want to encourage you, keep pressing forward. Keep trusting God. Keep trusting his will. Keep trusting that even though you're on a campus that is surrounded by iniquity, it's surrounded by sin, ultimately God is in control. And you can keep pressing forward because there's coming a day where he's going to make all things right again. Verse 18, I said in my heart concerning the condition of the sons of men, God tests them that they may see that they themselves are like animals. For what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them as one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and all return to dust. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men which go upward and the spirit of the animal which goes down to the earth. So I perceive that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Because of the sovereignty of God, even in the midst of death, you can have peace. Even in the midst of the most final, tragic, eternal thing that you could think of, your life ending, God is in control even of that. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, one day God is going to raise you from the dead to reign with him forever. Even in death, you can have peace. And what I love is verse 19. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over the animals for all is vanity. All go to one place and all are from the dust and all return to dust. You want to know why I'm confident of that? You want to know why I'm confident that even in the midst of death, God is in control? Because he has promised it. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. 
as God is judging Adam and Eve, like I talked about before, the first men and women who turned their back against God and sin entered the world, God judged them and declared this. He said, and the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for dust you are and to dust you shall return. Even in God declaring his judgment on people, even in God allowing us to die because of our sin, he is in control. And he's in control because he's given us a promise. Verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Right before God declares his judgment on people, he gives us a promise, the promise of his son, the promise of Jesus Christ, the promise of the Messiah, the one who would come one day to live a life that you and I could never live, to live perfectly before God, to never sin against him, to walk in the seasons of brokenness of our life that we've all experienced, and for this Jesus to go to the cross. God promised, even at the beginning, that this Jesus would go and conquer over sin, he would conquer over death, and he would conquer over the devil. Here's what I want to leave you with tonight. You can trust in the sovereignty of God. You can trust that even in a life that may seem meaningless, a world that may seem broken. And even in the midst that one day your life will end, you can trust God because he's given us a promise and what he declares always comes to pass. So for those of you who are in the room tonight, that maybe you're seeking the Lord or maybe you're just beginning to question, what is this, what is this Christian thing really about? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? If you are not in Christ, if there has not been a moment in your life where you've recognized that you are a sinner separated from God, a person just like Adam and Eve who has turned their back against God over and over and over again, and that you are separated from him because of your sin, all of the things that I talked about tonight do not apply to you. You can't trust in the sovereignty of God. You need to come into his presence by faith. And you need to recognize that Jesus is now the Lord of your life and give him control. And when you become his child, he's going to lead you every step of the way, no matter what you walk through, or no matter what trial, or what, no matter what struggle you may walk through, God is going to be with you. But I know that for many of you in the room, you are Christ followers. There's been a moment where you have trusted Jesus alone for salvation. Here's my encouragement to you. Live like God is in control. Live like he is with you every step of the way. And trust that no matter what you walk through, he's going to bring it through. And he's going to bring it to pass.